Welcome to the 16th episode in the first season of Justice Center Weekly, the video cast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's host, Kevin Steele, and with me today is the president and founder of the center, John Carpe, who is bringing us an update on what we refer to as the Ingram case. This is our court challenge to the health orders of Alberta's chief medical officer during the COVID period, filed back in December 2020. John, what's the latest? Well, as of today, Thursday, July 27th, we are recording and we are expecting a decision any day. Uh, we've been told that quite possibly we'll get a ruling by Monday, July 31st. Uh, but of course, the, the court is not obligated to meet a, uh, a particular deadline. So hints have been dropped that we're supposed to be getting this by the end of July. But it, it's a good time to recap uh, this uh, Ingram case was one of the first uh, challenges in Canada to government lockdown measures, which violated our uh, freedoms of uh, association and peaceful assembly, uh, freedoms of, of expression, uh, movement, travel, et cetera, et cetera. All, all of these rights and freedoms violated on the basis of the big lie, uh, or at least a big false statement. It might not have been a lie put forward by Dr. Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London, who said that uh, COVID would be as bad as the Spanish flu of 1918. And of course, that put everybody all over the world into a state of fear and a state of panic. And um, it, it, I went to the Alberta Health Services website earlier today to look at the uh, number of COVID deaths, and it was at 5,800, three and a half years in. And how does that compare to the modeling put out by Jason Kenney and Dina Hinshaw in April of 2020? They actually said that even with lockdown measures in place, uh, COVID could kill over 30,000 people in Alberta, which is a number that's actually bigger than the total annual deaths from all causes. And here we are three and a half, uh, three and a half years later, and We've got uh, 5,800 deaths, uh, 70, more 77% of which are people age of 70 and up. So the uh, did not have a big impact on, on population life expectancy. But we have this fear-mongering in, uh, in April of 2020 with uh, Chief Medical Officer Dina Hinshaw and Premier Jason Kenney uh, frightening everybody in Alberta by saying that as many as 30,000 people could die of COVID. So all of that is a backdrop. So we were uh, first out of the gates in filing a court action in December of 2020. And now two and a half years later, uh, we're hopefully going to get a ruling. Well, I know you didn't litigate this, but I, I, I think you know the larger issues at play here. Perhaps you could just lay out a little bit of that for us here. Well, one of the issues is that the, uh, the, the Public Health Act uh, one, one, of the, one of the issues raised in the court action is, is that the Public Health Act empowers the chief medical officer to quarantine or lock up sick people and that it's it she's gone far outside of her jurisdiction by locking down an entire population another interesting uh, issue in this court action over the last two and a half years was the uh, shifting authority of the chief medical officer who when she was first cross-examined uh, was very much uh, queen Dina Hinshaw uh, the monarch who uh, whose word, was supreme and whose edicts were hers and had to be obeyed. Uh, but then uh, after a few days of cross-examining 
she more shifted into, well, you know, I, I was I was just making recommendations to uh, to the cabinet. And really, it was the premier that uh, these decisions are the premier's, not mine. Right. I remember watching that, actually. Uh, I was monitoring the trial, and that was quite surprising how she changed her position, I guess, halfway through, or maybe a little bit more than halfway through. And that actually became kind of the focus of our team trying to get to the bottom of that. Uh, the judge took an adjournment at that time and, and came back. Uh, it... Uh, I think it's it's an issue that we're probably it's probably going to come out in the judgment. Although I can't really speculate on it, but it was such a such a kerfuffle at the time. Uh, at, at any rate, okay. So that was one of the issues. I understand there was also the influence of another case that was involved in in this. There was another case brought by the Alberta Federation of Labor, which was to, uh, challenging the decision of Dina Henshaw to no longer. Uh, force children in schools to wear masks. So it was the lifting of the mandatory mask mandate. I don't think it was in any way, shape, or form a prohibition on wearing masks. So if there were kids or the parents of kids wanted certain, you know, kids to wear masks, that would, but it, it made it. Dina Hinshaw said it's no longer mandatory for kids to wear masks in school. And of course, we've discovered through a combination of the two court actions that that there was evidence that. Dina Hinshaw was aware of to the effect that there were no medical benefits to making children wear masks. Uh, children are not super spreaders and there could be harm to children. And uh, yet in our court action, when she was questioned about that, she denied having any kind of this, uh, any kind of memos or knowledge about how forcing kids to wear masks uh, could be harmful to children. She denied that, and yet in the other court action, it, it's evident that um, she did have that information before her as, as part of the overall information. So it appears that she lied in this uh, Ingram action. Yeah, I understand from that other case too, they, they ruled about the jurisdiction that the, uh, the, the limitations that the health officer had. Isn't that correct? I believe so. The whole... The whole procedural history of this case has been, uh, it's been tragic and, and, and sad. The, the court action was filed in December of 2020. It was about the violation of, of charter rights and freedoms. To me, it seems that there is an urgency there, okay? If there's, uh, you know, the ABC company is suing the XYZ company over, you know, $10 million for breach of contract. I mean, of course, those two companies also want and deserve to have a ruling as soon as possible, but the stakes are not nearly as high as when you've got ongoing violations of, of charter rights and freedoms. And so initially the government won the first battle, which was an application for an injunction to lift the orders before Christmas. And for those injunctions, the court, uh, there's a different test at play where you don't take a hard look at the constitutionality of the law, but you uh, assume that the law is valid. Anyway, we lost that application. We did not save Christmas. It was illegal in in uh, in Alberta to have Christmas dinner with 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 both of your parents. Uh, if your parents were divorced or separated, you could invite one of them for Christmas dinner. But you, oh, it's just uh, it was just awful. In any event, these are ongoing violations of charter rights and freedoms, and so you would think you would hope that the court would want to see the government's evidence immediately. And at this point in time, December of 2020, these violations of our rights and freedoms had been taking place for nine months. 
nine months of uh, that it was illegal to associate freely with other people outside of your own household. Nine months of destroying businesses, nine months of, of driving people into loneliness and despair. We saw rises in drug, addition, drug addictions. Uh, we, we saw the destruction of livelihoods. This had been going on for nine months. So you would hope that there'd be some sense of urgency and you would hope that the government would have its evidence by then, right? After nine right. months of violating our charter rights and freedoms in the name of some uh, supposedly something as bad as the Spanish flu of 1918 that's supposedly going to kill over 30,000 Albertans, uh, you'd think the government would have the evidence. But but uh, the government very early on said, well, we don't. We need six months to get our evidence together. Now, that's outrageous when you are in the process of violating charter rights and freedoms every day, and the charter itself says that the government cannot do this unless they have compelling evidence that would uh, uh, show that the violate the laws that violate our charter rights and freedoms that, that that is doing more good than harm. The onus is on the government, and here the government says we don't we don't have evidence to back this up. I mean that's outrageous, and they said we we need until July of 2022. So they needed seven months to gather their evidence. I can tell you, uh, I, I, if I'd been the judge, I would have said, well, no, actually, you've been violating the charter rights and freedoms already for nine months. So you should have all the evidence there. Now, if you need a week or two to gather it together and decide, okay, you know, who, who's going to be, who are going to be our, our witnesses and, you know, which particular studies and reports are we putting forward? Okay, fine. You know, give them two or three weeks. Anyway, the government got seven months. And by July, what they produced was just pathetic. It was a bunch of models uh, and very little in the way of hard evidence. Yes, actually, I remember one lawyer remarking that, you know, they had enough credibility or whatever it was to win the injunction against you guys. But, you know, they didn't have enough evidence to go to court when it came down to it. You know, that, that uh, kind of blew them away. So, yeah, that was that was the first, I guess, uh, I don't know if it was a tell, but obviously an indication that the government was not prepared with uh, proper science as they kept uh, touting at the time. We, we then had a further delay uh, caused by uh, the Alberta government saying that Dr. Dina Henshaw, the chief medical officer, could not be available for um, a court hearing in September uh, because she was so busy saving lives. I mean, the, you know, the poor woman is, is working around the clock and just, you know, could not take two days off work to attend court. That was the position put forward. Lo and behold, it turns out that she scheduled a holiday for herself for those same two days. Uh, I don't know what the sequence was. You know, first they, they got the hearing delayed because, you know, Dr. Dina Hinshaw is so busy saving the lives of Alberta, Albertans every day that she cannot attend court. And maybe she scheduled her application after her lawyer secured an adjournment. But regardless of the sequence, uh, it was just absolutely disgusting that this woman would take a holiday. And I don't even know to what extent it's her fault or her lawyer's fault. I mean, sometimes in court, it's the lawyer who is really driving the agenda and they're getting the consent from the client. But really, it's, you know, the lawyer is arguing, oh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw is not available. But whether it was driven by the lawyer or by her herself, either way, just disgusting that this action gets delayed on this false claim that she is uh, so busy saving lives that she cannot attend court for two days. Uh, and yet, you know, it was fine for her to take a holiday. 
Yeah, and I remember uh, near the end of the uh, hearings, there was the issue of cabinet privilege came up, and this was something that the uh, judge actually sought in a German for uh, to go make a decision on and ruled somewhat in favor of, I would say, our side, uh, but they didn't get to question Dina Hinshaw again. Because so it's more, it's, 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 it's a procedural, just, just sad and disgusting how uh, Dina Hinshaw appears to have lied under oath by claiming that you know, she had no information about the negative impact of mandatory masking on children uh, and and then this gets you know blown away by what's going on in a different court decision where she and the government admitted to having had the evidence of uh, harm to children from mandatory masking policies. Um, the, the the actual hearing itself uh, did not take place until February of 2022, which was a year and two months after the filing of the claim. And of course, it took 14 months because you've got these uh, delay tactics. Uh, the government saying it needs seven months to to get its evidence together, and then the court actually going along with that and saying, "Yeah, you can have seven months." So the uh, our, our key witness was Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford University, uh, world renowned medical uh, expert, also an economist, and one of the three authors of of the Great Barrington Declaration. And uh, it, it was interesting that the uh, the government's uh, key witness, uh, I think it was a man, Kinderchuk, is that correct? Yeah, Jason Kinderchuk, yeah. from Manitoba. From Manitoba. Uh, so the key, the, key evident, uh, the, the, the key witness for the Alberta government referred to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya as the guy who was kicked off of Twitter. Yes, I remember that. That was quite the moment. Uh, and it stuck in my head at the time. And of course, what happened subsequently was that uh, the Twitter files came out and they mentioned Dr. Jay Bhattacharya specifically. And the authors of the Twitter files actually invited Dr. Bhattacharya to go down to Twitter and view the censorship. He was censored not because of his science, but because of his political position. You mean they, they, and, they asked Dr. Bhattacharya to go down and view it? Or are you talking right. about Dr. Yeah, Kinderchuk? Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, no. Uh, you know, yeah, Bhattacharya was allowed to go down okay. and view it. Yeah. Because he was did, the one that Did was, he do that? Yes, he did. He went okay. down and he viewed the evidence. And uh, yeah, so that it's good that that's on the record because that was obviously, this was meant to be a disparaging remark from uh, Dr. Kindrachuk towards the expert witness of uh, our side, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. And uh, I guess history has uh, vindicated Dr. Bhattacharya regarding the whole Twitter scenario at any rate. It goes to show how unscientific the government's position is when you've got a government witness that wants to impress upon the court that somebody is disliked by Twitter, it's this whole groupthink mentality of, you know, it, it's kind of a innuendo that if you're kicked off of Twitter, I mean, Twitter only features uh, people that are good and intelligent. And if you've, if you've been kicked off of Twitter, uh, then you're a bad person or you're stupid or you're both. And just that whole uh, very anti-science uh, authoritarian innuendo. It's like, you know, come on guys, uh, you know, Twitter, Twitter's not going to allow, uh, Twitter's going to kick off anybody that, that's saying something false. And so Jay Bhattacharya got kicked off of Twitter. So that tells you all you need to know about Jay Bhattacharya, right? It's just, just disgusting. 
Well, I for me, it was the remark of the hearing. I know that it isn't central to the issue, except that I guess one of the things that the uh, Alberta government tried to do was discredit Bhattacharya as uh, I, he was one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration and uh, Stanford University professor, and they tried very hard to discredit him, and I think that's what uh, that's what Kindrichuk was attempting to do with that remark, of course. And like I say, it ends up being, for me, the highlight of the whole hearing because of what happened, what happened afterwards with the Twitter files and the fact that Bhattacharya was actually singled out to come down. So, yeah, it, it ends up being like, a, I would say, an international deal. And it was kind of like the, the time the spotlight shone directly on that hearing from uh, afar. It'll be interesting to see if, if what, what I found in um, court judgments released in the last uh, 12 to 18 months is thus far, uh, courts ignore the evidence that is placed before them. Uh, they, they don't... They, they they ignore it or 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 they just don't really engage it. I mean, we had we had the gateway decision in in Manitoba where uh, the the trial judge ruled in favor of the Manitoba government, uh, even though the Manitoba government's key uh, one of their chief witnesses was the head of of Winnipeg Labs admitted under oath that the Manitoba government was lying to the population with all the PCR testing. And so every time the government said that there were a thousand cases of COVID, they knew that there were at least 560 of those thousand people that did not have COVID. So it was blatant daily lying by fear mongering about cases. And so you get the, but you get the court ruling just conveniently omits, doesn't mention uh, key evidence. And, and it doesn't explain why the government's evidence uh, should be given more weight than the evidence put forward by the applicants who are saying that their charter rights and freedoms are violated. So it's very frustrating. Uh, so even if, if you're lucky, the court might outline some of the evidence and say, well, you know, the applicant said A, B, C, D, E, and the government said F, G, H, I, J. And you might, you might get to that point, but then they don't take it a step further and, and actually explain why, in the, in the judge's view, the government's evidence is stronger, better, more persuasive more relevant. There's no explanation. And, and oftentimes they just don't, uh, they declare something to be moot. Uh, we've seen this uh, quite recently again, uh, where the government simply withdraws uh, or a health order expires and the court says, oh, there's nothing to see here. We don't need to make a ruling on that. Can we fear that here as well? I know that it's not unreasonable to speculate on this regard. I mean, I know that there are ways of avoiding dealing with the uh, with the whole constitutional issue. Uh, if they go with the procedural issue, they can actually sort of dodge the uh, the the, um, the charter issues by preempting them. Uh, so, are you worried about a mute, a mootness issue? I'm I'm just hopeful that maybe we'll get uh, a court ruling that actually engages the evidence, mm -hmm. and and then and even if it's a ruling in favor of the government and against the people whose charter rights and freedoms are violated, uh, I would hope that there would be reasons put forward where the judge actually says, you know, here, here is why and how the government's evidence is better, stronger, more persuasive. That would be a ruling that's easier to live with. But what I've seen so far is the, the courts do not engage the evidence and they do not provide really much in the way of explanation as to 
why uh, government's evidence is better. Uh, in the Manitoba case, the ruling boiled down to, uh, well, it's the worst pandemic in a, cent- in a century. And so in a state of emergency like this, we just have to defer to the government. Uh, thank you. Goodbye. That was, uh, th- that was the essence of the ruling. It, it, it's, and it's, it's circular. It's not what the charter, the charter requires governments to uh, demonstrably justify any violation. So the onus is on the government to prove that COVID is as serious as claimed and that the lockdowns are truly effective in saving lives, for which, by the way, I don't think there's any evidence, uh, not that I've seen the last three and a half years, because everywhere, every place that locked down, which is pretty much the whole world, um, the the virus spread anyways. So how did lockdown save lives when the virus spread everywhere? So the government's not even able to put forward persuasive evidence about lockdown saving lives. And then they run away from all the harms. So... Yeah. The one thing about this case I recall uh, while I was watching uh, the, the hearings was that they limited the evidence to, I think, uh, the first and second wave. So, you know, it was only what they knew at that particular time. And interestingly enough, as we now know and people talk about all the time, the lockdowns were unproven, uh, were an unproven um, non-pharmaceutical intervention. And yet this is completely justified by wasn't justified by the numbers. It was justified by what uh, the media was saying was the severity of the pandemic. Well, that's another that's another horrible pretrial ruling in the Engram case. Uh, the court said that it would not look at any evidence that was um, uh, after July of 2021. It's like, well, if you want to look at lockdown harms or even lockdown benefits, you know, from the from the government side. Uh, if, if there's evidence that, that lockdowns even saved lives, uh, which, which again, I have yet, to, if it exists, I have yet to see it. Uh, if you know of some compelling evidence that shows that lockdowns saved lives, please send it to the Justice Center. I'd love to look at it. Um, but here the court ruled that they were not accepting any uh, documents past July of 2021. So that excluded, uh, there was a meta study of lockdowns across the globe. And most of those studies were from 2020. And this was a meta-analysis, so the, the scientists had taken the time to look at other studies and put them together and come up with a broader conclusion. And of course, oh, no, we're not interested in that. So if we do get a ruling, um, it, it's a situation where, where the court has deliberately said they don't want to hear any evidence about the efficacy of lockdowns or the lack of efficacy, which is which is just pathetic because that's, that's the, that's the heart of the issue. The heart of the constitutional issue is does the government have uh, adequate justification to put in place all of these lockdowns, which clearly violate our freedoms of association and other rights and freedoms. And so you have a court saying, we don't really want to see the evidence on lockdowns. Yes. If I recall the Manitoba ruling, it was simply that, you know, we just go directly to section one, you know, oh, bad pandemic section one. It's demonstrably justified by what we read in the newspaper. Well, it was, it was fine to go to section one. They're supposed to do that, but it's supposed to be a thorough comprehensive weighing of the evidence. And the onus is on the government to show that the charter violating that the laws that violate charter rights and freedoms, that those laws are doing more good than harm. The onus is on the government to demonstrate that. So it's fine. The court should be going to section one, which is the balancing exercise, but they need to do section one properly. Uh, and that means holding the government 
to account such that the government produces the evidence to show that uh, that these laws did more good than harm. And that's it hasn't happened yet. I have I have yet to see a court ruling in Canada where there was a proper engagement of Section 1 as opposed to a cursory dismissal of, of the applicant's claim uh, without doing the proper analysis under Section 1. Okay, well, I guess it's fair to say that when this ruling comes out, it's going to be gone over with a fine-tooth comb, no matter which way it goes, because it's either going to have a lot of info on uh, those Section 1 uh, adjudications or it's not, and uh, then, of course, there's the potential for a, an appeal. I, I would anticipate whichever side is not successful in uh, mm. the Ingram case is likely to appeal it to the next level. That would be my guess. Although I will remind people, the, the case that we referred to earlier, which was, uh, what was it, CM? CM. Yeah, CM versus Alberta, yeah. Right, and uh, I recall uh, somebody telling me they didn't. the Alberta government didn't appeal on that one, and that's where they actually ruled against the jurisdiction of Dina Hinshaw, which I believe uh, weighs very heavily in favor of our side. Um, does it not? We'll see what uh, the Alberta Court of Kings bench does with it in the days ahead. And, and again, we, we might get the judgment by July 31st, but, but if not, uh, this video cast is still uh, interesting comment on the case. And I, I hope to be writing about it as well in the days ahead. Uh, see if I can't put pen to paper or put fingers to the keyboard and uh, write a column about, about this case as well. Sure. I just want to put a plug in for that CM case, uh, which was adjudicated last July, and it was Justice Dunlop. That should make it easier for you to look up if you want to check it out on Canly, a site you like to uh, plug every time uh, you, you get a chance because it's a great place to find uh, research for legal cases. So, yeah, I guess uh, we're going to be on Canly quite a bit in the next little while. Thanks, John, for being with us for this uh, episode, just going quickly over the Ingram case as we anticipate the ruling. Hope to talk to you again about it real soon. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Talk to you again soon.